Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am your host, and at the moment, I am in the desert southwest, not too far from Los Alamos, New Mexico, site of the development of the atomic bomb, although um, that has nothing to do with why I'm here. Uh, in Washington, <laughs> D.C., we have Rosa Brooks, who is on the run trying to avoid writing her book. Uh, and <laughs> Hey, it's hard work. In, in the United Kingdom, we have not just Corey Shockey, holder of the tiara of optimism, but <laughs> somewhere in some hedgerow in some beautiful, bucolic British countryside setting, we have Ed Luce. Um, we, we have Atlantic symmetry. Yeah. <laughs> the relationship is coming back. But Ed, I have to turn to you first, because last week we had a discussion about Imran Khan which certain people tried to turn in the direction of what a hunky was in his cricket whites. I'm not naming names, Rosa, but allow some- me to point out that I did not engage in that form of um, objectification of a world leader. That's well, I, I just can't help recalling that in my youth, he was considered quite the studly cricket player. Studly cricket players. In my youth, we didn't even, <laughs> we didn't even consider studly cricket players. But <laughs> there you are. And Rosa made this statement. And then there were several comments on what a horrendously boring game cricket is. <laughs> and this has produced an international outcry with formal protests from the British government, sort of, by Twitter. Well, most things are done by Twitter these days. In which it was said, A, this game is not boring, it's dramatic, um, which is laughable, but let's just move on from that. And B, how could you have this discussion without Ed Luce there to defend the game of cricket? So, Ed, to you. <laughs> Go. Well, I, I, I have to commend you, David, um, for bringing me in. Uh, you know, you didn't need to. You're, you, are, you are playing with a straight bat, as we say. That's, that's good, good rules of cricket ethics that you're displaying. Wow. Um, I do think it can be dramatic. Um, if you've ever seen India-Pakistan in Karachi, um, uh, uh, a one-day game, uh, and you've listened to the noise and seen the passion and actually watched the game out there, which changes much, much more quickly than you'd think. It, it's really dramatic. It's not, I think, probably in America, people, it, word association, they hear the word cricket and they think cucumber t- sandwiches and very sort of uh, dull English village greens, um, you know, yes. with yes. men yes. in that's flannels. That's yeah. what, that, that's the pastoral image that conjures up. But there are, you know, people from countries <laughs> that almost two billion almost two billion strong of, of people from countries that, that follow it. And not all of them have the, that, that, um, 
cliched English temperament. It can be extremely exciting. The most recent team to qualify for international cricket, um, and it looks like a pretty fierce one, is Afghanistan. Uh, and, you know, although the Taliban don't approve of cricket, it's a Western a Western sport, um, somebody batting and facing one of the uh, Afghan fast bowlers could be forgiven for thinking the Taliban are charging at him um, with the intent of doing damage. So it's not it's not as sort of genteel as you might think. It can be very dramatic and people get killed playing this game. Not through boredom. I'm just preempting your joke there, David. <laughs> Have you ever played a game of cricket? Well, believe it or not, I I, I used to play for um, my county age group. So the under 13s, under 15s, under um, 19s of Sussex, which is where I am now, where my parents still live. And um, as per your your episode last week, the the star player for Sussex um, was Imran Khan in those days. And he used to come in and coach us every now and then um but he'd always get interrupted after about 90 seconds because somebody would come in with one of those giant 1980s cell phones and say uh imran we've got annabelle or sasha or um daphne <laughs> on the phone for you and you go oh god yeah i'll see you later guys and <laughs> that was it so basically there was um, what we call a a Sloan, a Sloan circuit of of women um clamoring to talk to him and he never he never actually coached us for very long Wow. Well, I think that supports Rose's theory. I think of the it does. I think it does. It does. It does. Now, um, he was Rosa, a heartthrob. Now, Rosa, let me ask you a question. Have you ever played a game of cricket? Yes, I have, David. I, I briefly played on the Christchurch uh, ladies cricket team at Oxford, which may have only lasted a game or two. I can't remember. I have a vague feeling it fell apart pretty quickly. Um, but but I had... I, I'm... I'm not particularly a, a natural athlete, but I had a one big advantage going for me over the English girls, which is that uh, as an American who grew up playing softball, I had hit balls with bats before, and, and they had not. Uh, <laughs> so that, that really made me... You a, had an eye for the ball. I did. <laughs> and I got Corey, one of those cute little sweaters, or jumpers, as you call them. Corey, don't you feel left out? I do not, in fact, feel left out. I am perfectly at peace with never having played cricket <laughs> and never in the future playing cricket. I, 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 I think lose no sleep over it. <laughs> I have to tell you, though, I did a cricket match last Friday night. A gang of folks from my office went. And as a spectator sport, it really was fun. And it's not like baseball, but I can see why some people like both uh, games because they're intensely provincial with all sorts of rules that are specific to the format, right? Like the short format, the long format. Mm -hmm. If the pitcher's throwing, pitching from bowling from this side, then this happens, but he can also bowl from the other side. Like the rules are so Byzantine that any <laughs> baseball fan's heart warms to that kind of thing. Who was playing? Who, I have no idea. Wow. Wow. Yeah. What one really in jerseys. <laughs> one set were in pink jerseys who, according to my Wolfpack, I was not supposed to root for, so I did. And the other were wearing, I don't know, blue jerseys or something. And that's who the actual cricket fans in our midst were in favor of. 
And that's, you know, I was so hoping you were going to say you are now a fan of the South Hackney Beaver Brooks. Or <laughs> <laughs> See, my, my, main, my main cricket memory is, is that my, my South African boyfriend, who I, my boyfriend at the time, would drag me off, since he was, of course, a cricket fan, he would drag me off to watch, you know, the Oxford cricket team play and and things would get so slow that he would say things like, why don't we go get a few uh, games of tennis in while we're <laughs> waiting so we can get a little exercise. Um, so. <laughs> then come back and watch. Yeah. The, yeah. Nothing else well, was happening. We'd, you know. <laughs> well, apparently Ed's entire teenage years passed between cricket games um, or during the downtime between cricket games. Well, folks, I hope those of you who are out there listening who have been concerned about this feel we've given cricket its due. Um, and I appreciate and it. We're done now. You've even given it a little geopolitical spin um, with the India, Pakistan, Afghanistan cricket connection. There's more where that came from. <laughs> yes. Well, well, Ed, you know, I, I, I'd be remiss if we, I didn't pick up on this. You are one of the leading scholars on the subcontinent, having written the best book about India that I know about. Um, what do you think about Imran Khan? Um, the expectations are low. The good, th the good thing to say about him is he's not from one of the two big feudal families that have been alternating power when the military wasn't in control, namely the Bhuttos and the Sherry family. Uh, the bad thing is that, you know, he was enabled by the military, will uh, therefore very it's very hard to see the difference between his his civilian government um and any of its predecessors in that respect but he is per what rosa said he he was a heartthrob of whole generations of indians um uh, you know uh, he's absolutely loved a sort of number one celebrity in india and um you know that could if he wishes to broach you know something new with narendra modi on kashmir which has been deteriorating um he could have he could have the the sort of um, the independent sort of celebrity stature to actually make waves on that. But uh, to be honest, I haven't followed it closely enough, and uh, it's probably unlikely. All right, so let me do this. It's the summertime. There's a usually there's a lull in the summer, and in in this era, of course, there is no lull. There's something happening every twenty five minutes. And what I'd like to do is cover a few of the things that have happened in the past few days uh, so that we can get everybody up to sort of um, nerd speed on these things. And then... <laughs> nerd speed. Yeah. Well done, David. <laughs> Thank you. And then we will get to, in the next episode, I would like to have a little discussion of what everybody's reading, books, uh, and so forth. Um, but let's just take this in no particular um, order. Um, uh, the president of the United States over the weekend decided via tweet to acknowledge that his son had taken a meeting uh, along with his son-in-law and his then about-to-be campaign manager with a bunch of agents of the Russian government with the purpose of getting uh, dirt on his opponent. And also, I might add, um, with the purpose of, uh, or, or, or the consequence of sending the message to the Russians that he was open to receiving their aid in, the, in these matters, which in and of itself may be even more consequential. Um, 
So it, you know, that would seem to me to be admitting to breaking campaign finance law because you can't accept aid from uh, foreign citizens or governments. Um, uh, it may also be admitting to uh, some greater part in a conspiracy to defraud the United States or worse. So that seems like a big deal. And yet here it is Monday and it's not even the lead story anymore. So why is that, Corey? Uh, I actually genuinely worry that we are getting so desensitized to outrageous, um, beyond the bounds of propriety, beyond the norms of American democracy, beyond the decency with which we have previously expected our leadership to comport themselves, and possibly beyond the law, that that we're just um, not, we can't summon the outrage for every successive outrage. And um, and that worries me for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, because I believe the Mueller investigation, when it finishes its charge sheet, is going to need us to be outraged and indignant. Um, second, because uh, while there may be legal, appropriate legal outcomes to this tawdry saga, I think the most consequential ones, the best ones for the country, would be political consequences for that behavior. That is, Americans choosing at the ballot box not to validate this kind of behavior. And that will require us continuing to be outraged. Um, and and yet, like, the numbness of, of every successive indignity by the president and the Elmore Leonard characters around him is honestly starting to wear me down a little bit. Um, well, I'm sorry that it's wearing you down and hopefully joining us here as you do every week will invigorate you. Um, I do have one more question for you, Corey, before I go on to Rosa. Every time I look at Twitter, I see that you've been on a different other podcast. And in fact, I've come to the conclusion <laughs> that you've been on every podcast. And so I just have one question for you, and that is, do, do you still love us best? Of course. Okay. Of course I do. Um, that's why, <coughs> excuse me, that's why I am here, horse or, or speaking silkenly, uh, every single time we record. No, and we love that. And you sound a little bit like Tallulah Bankhead. Um, oh, thank you. That adds a patina <laughs> of glamour to my workaday life. Yeah, it's a little bit of glamour. So, Rosa, what, what, why do you think that the president can admit to, like, big-time crimes on a Sunday, and on a Monday, everybody else is like, what else is new? Well, I mean, as I mean, you, you, Corey said it, it's where we have thuggish and corrupt behavior fatigue from the Trump administration. Uh, you know, that, that there are new instances of thuggishness and corruption uh, are revealed multiple times to, per day. So it's just hard to keep track of them. But it, it does seem like <laughs> it was, um, of Trump's many not so smart tweets, this was one of them um, since uh, <laughs> the, you know, the violation at issue at a minimum would be 
accepting, seeking and accepting something of value from a foreign government to aid your campaign. Um, and obviously saying, oh, yes, we were hoping that we were hoping that, you know, people linked to the Russian government would have dirt on an opponent sort of seems like it falls into that category. Um, I, it's, it's interesting. I was talking to my, my mother uh, just a little while ago who had your mother, your mother, whose views are always so moderate on everything, whose views are moderate on everything. <laughs> and she proposed an even more cynical theory of Trump's tweet when he, you know, he also was saying things like, well, I, you know, I, I sure hope poor Don Jr. doesn't get in trouble for this. Her theory was that he was actually dangling Don Jr. out there as, 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 you know, go for him, not me. And that he was happily willing to oh, see wow. Don Jr. go off to jail and saying, I didn't know anything about it. I, I sure hope Don Jr. doesn't go to jail just because he was looking for dirt on our opponents from the Russians. So uh, and I, I said, Mom, but there I you have that. it. I have to say, I love your mother's tweets. They always go one step further than I had ever thought <laughs> to go. Anyone you know? would go, yes, well. <laughs> no, it's it's quite it's quite comforting. So so let me ask you, Ed. You're there with your family, undoubtedly. You know, lo, lo, you know, servants and morning coats and all that other kind of stuff. <laughs> and, and 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 with like little sandwiches with the crust cut off. Do you drop those little sandwiches in your tea when you hear that Trump has done something like this? I spill my tea and I just yeah. drop the cucumber in it. Uh, I spill it on my lap and the liveried servants, you know, then get in a big fuss. Um, no, I, 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 um, Jeeves I, I mean, I, shimmers into view and hands you a new waistcoat. Nice. Yeah, I like some, shimmers into view, like by the way. I really do. PG Woodhouse. P.G. Woodhouse is great, by the way. If anybody, we'll, we'll talk about novels later and books in, in the next episode this week. But I have to say, if you're having a rough summer, go read some P.G. Woodhouse. That'll cheer you up. Absolutely. Anyway, anyway is a P.G. Woodhouse Indeed. character. Indeed. And if you want a nice comic depiction of the black shirts, as the British fascists were known, a topical one that might be redolent of today, P.G. Woodhouse can, can give you that, too. Um, uh, I don't, you know, I don't have anything particularly novel to add to uh, the the wise words of of Corey and Rosa on 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 this subject. I mean, I I did I did like the fact, or uh, as others did, that Hope Hicks turns up in Bedminster, you know, um, having been the person on the plane with Trump who um, cobbled together the original statement, um, uh, a completely different statement about why that meeting had taken place and why Trump knew nothing about it and why it was to do with Russian children and adoption and, and nothing to do with, um, you know, election dirt. Uh, I thought the timing of that was interesting and no doubt um, people with good grounds will suspect there's some getting some stories straight before Mueller talks to them again, um, work going on there in, beds, in Bedminster. Um, the... Um, the the notion, of course, that this wasn't really about America first at all. It was about Russian children first, was pretty preposterous. So, <laughs> so Trump, um, you know, they're they're extremely kind family, and they're well known for their milk of human kindness, etc. But it, that did that did stretch it a little bit. Um, uh, so Trump has only said what we what we know to be true. Um, it, it does belie this this view that you know sometimes Trump can be diabolically clever. Um, says things that 
just outrageous. They're shockingly immoral, amoral, nasty, inhumane. Um, but they stoke up the outraged machine. They polarize, inflame his base. They serve some intelligent purpose in Trump's scheme of things. I cannot see an intelligent upside to self-incrimination on Twitter. I just can't see it. <laughs> yeah, no, well, there's probably not. That's because you're ask, thinking uh, like an intelligent person, Ed. Yeah. Uh, let, me, let me ask something before I go back to Corey here. Let me ask something of our uh, kindly Sergeant Krupke here, which is to say Officer Brooks. Uh, if, if she is a witness in the Mueller investigation and the president invites her onto a plane to fly around with him, doesn't that raise sort of suspicions of witness tampering? There was no collusion. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, that's a that's a mug we we will not make. By the way, um, there, there there was no collusion, and, it, and if there was, it was legal. I feel like the collu- I feel like the coffee mug really needs to be Ed's quote, which is, "I can see no no intelligent purpose to self incrimination." Yes, I like that. It's a bit, it's a bit of a mouthful. Well, <laughs> more than a sip of tea. All I can say is that Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani deserve each other. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's true. And I hope they have adjoining cells. Uh, but <laughs> I, I have to say, Corey, as I listen to this, I want to switch on to some other more international stuff in a second. But it's just the four of us here. It's the summertime. We're having a little bit of relaxed chat. You know, who could be listening? 50, 75,000 people maybe given, you know, the week. Um, uh, I watch some of these Trump folks at these rallies. And, you know, they're wearing shirts. You know, there was a picture you may have seen, which is, you know, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd rather move to Russia than be a Democrat. And um, they're, they're shouting stuff at the press and the president's calling the press enemies of the people. And, and, and his base is eating it up and they're eating up the lies and they're buying into his nonsense about climate change. And, you know, if you would only allow the people of California to use water, they could put out their fires and all this kind of insanity. And I, and I, and I must admit that I have this thought, you know, that there's 35% of the American people, they probably won't carry the next election because they won't get the turnout they want and the rest of the turnout will be fine. And they're assholes. These people are morons. And should we really be, you know, they've been for two years, listen to them, connect to them, relate to them. I can't relate to them. These people are hopeless. Shouldn't we just move on and figure out a way to work the government of the United States without having to deal with these jerks? Um, so <laughs> I'm sympathetic to uh your revulsion at the worst edge of the trump supporters right the tiki torch racist marchers in charlottesville the idiots wearing a i'd rather be russian than a democrat and it is tempting to give them the opportunity to become that um that is to take their passports and drop them off in moscow Maybe we can swap um, them for Steven Seagal, our new envoy from Russia. <laughs> um, He's not but, looking so good, I noticed. But they he are American citizens. Funky. But yeah. they ha- they are American citizens. They're entitled to their views, no matter how crazy, no matter how offensive. These 35% of Trump supporters 
in my judgment, are not all Charlottesville tiki torch people. And and I'm totally sympathetic to the, I'm tired of trying to understand their problems. Why aren't they trying to understand the problems of, you know, growing up in South Los Angeles as a first generation immigrant trying to learn the language, right? Like they're not empathetic of others and yet they are demanding of empathy for themselves. My own personal preferred solution is um, they do have some legitimate concerns. Address the legitimate concerns and then ignore the lunatic fringe. <laughs> yes, that is the kind of compromise that I'm looking for. What do you think, Rosa? We can address a couple of concerns that are not insane and then ignore them forever. <laughs> well, you know, so I guess when you look at it historically, some percentage of the American electorate you know, I don't know, 20%, 30%, you know, year in, year out has been determined to be, uh, you know, ignorant and not very nice. Um, um, And so in that sense, I'm not actually sure that the sort of hardcore of Trump supporters is is a new development. Um, You know, although I I think, I think what's new is the, the level of, um, you know, forget dog whistling, the level of sort of open approval of uh, the yes, worst instincts. incitement. Yeah, the worst instincts of the worst group of people. Um, that's that's something that's new. So I, I'm not I'm not sure that 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 group is going away. Um, I'm not sure that ignoring them or not ignoring them will make any real difference. Um, I mean, I, I share Corey's belief that there are, you know, glommed in with the percentage, with whatever percentage of people are just basically horrible human beings, um, that there are people who are just, you know, clueless or are voting on single issues and willingly ignoring everything else and that there are some, some reachable people who can be kind of, you know, it's, it's like when we talk about the Taliban, okay, right? We talk about the, the, the right. and the irreconcilables. Uh, I mean, and I think it might be good to turn that's right. insurgency lens to thinking about our own population, because uh, in all honesty, what we have going on right now is an insurgency of sorts, and the insurgents have captured the White House. Um, and in the, you know, in those groups of insurgents, um, you know, that there are there are irreconcilables. You know, that just as there are members of the Taliban who no matter what, they are not going to suddenly going to become, you know, democratic, peace-loving supporters of a stable Afghanistan, uh, you know, that recognizes human rights for all. It's not going to happen. But on the other hand, there are some who who will, getting pretty reasonable. Um, they say, well, you know, here's, here's what's attractive to me about the Taliban, but if you can address this and that, you know, yes, I'm willing to change. And I, I think that for, for us, the trick, you know, if, I, I think if you're a Democrat right now, you you have there's a short term strategy and a longer term strategy, and they're a little bit different. I think that the short term emergency strategy for the next three months has nothing to do with reaching out to the reconcilables in the insurgency. It has 100 percent, 100, you know, 50 percent is to do with getting uh, Democrats and independents who are going to vote Democratic to the polls. 
um, you know, and doing election protection work and so forth. You know, that this is not the time to persuade people. Persuading people takes a whole lot of energy per per possibly persuadable person. It's hard work. Um, so right now the strategy is just, you know, get the get the people who are who are already likely to vote Democratic to just get out there and actually vote. The long-term strategy, though, I think it has to be to reach out to at least the reconcilables while while acknowledging to ourselves that you know, you're not going to get everybody and the, the you're going to get diminishing marginal returns at a certain point in terms of trying to reach everybody. It's just not a strategy that makes any particular sense, you know, that you could pour your heart and tons of money into trying to peel away certain people from from the Trump base and they're, they're just not going to go. So, Ed, this is a good model, right? We divide the Republican Party into the good Taliban and the bad Taliban. <laughs> and then we just try to deal with the good <laughs> Taliban of the Republican Party and not deal with the the you know try to reason with the people who are so unreasonable, um, and you know given your great classical education, I'm sure you have some insight <laughs> from from David Hume into the folly of trying to reason uh, yes. with the unreasonable. Uh, uh, there's good Taliban, there's bad Taliban, and and there's Al, Al Qaeda, of course. Um, you know, people saying I'd rather be Russian than Democrat, you know, are, are declaring a, a sort of form of civil war. And, and you well, know, so I would put Alex Jones, right? You know, they, and there's Alex Jones, you know, and as an enemy of the people, you know, I would include Trump in that, too, um, which is why we're in such a pickle. You know, we're not just talking about fringe groups, even though this probably is a fringe of America, but it's it's not because the, the president is actively supporting and stoking them. Um I so two things. Um, one is the um, um, the power of humor. You know, I think our fear is their strength, and I think that our outrage is their pleasure. Um, and I think to the extent that we can separate things that should outrage us from things that should just cause us to collapse in laughter. So, really, are you that stupid? Um, are you referring uh, to Sasha Baron Cohen getting Joe Arpaio to say that he would accept a blowjob from Donald Trump? Well, that kind of thing is certainly helpful. Wow, I, I, David, I did not need that yeah, visual. I, well, I no, missed that. No. I'm, I'm not just, sorry. Just I missed pulled that. from the pulled from the headlines, Corey. Not 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 out of my mind. Yeah, I, I, well, I mean, my visual was more something that Corey will perhaps appreciate even less, which was the uh, Georgia <laughs> state senator. Uh, moving backwards with his pants around his ankles oh, yeah. um, in, in, a, in, a, in an anti-ISIS maneuver that Sasha Baron Cohen had somehow <laughs> talked him into. Um, but um, there is a brilliant documentary if, if you're up at 2 a.m. and you've, you've, you know, you've had enough of cricket by that time of the night and you want to watch a classic documentary. is one by Nick Broomfield called The Leader, The Driver and His Wife. And it's about Eugene Terreblanche, the leader of the most right-wing um, pro-apartheid group in the late 80s, early 90s, who you know would have had Mandela executed rather than released. Um, and he was, he was a frightening force in South African politics. And the documentary was brilliant because he got behind the scenes, he got to know the driver of Terra Blanche, he got to know his wife. And it turned out not only um, that did the documentary puncture this man's sort of ghastly vile, dangerous pomposity. But it turned out the longer the documentary went, 
And the more the documentary maker, Nick Broomfield, got to know the driver and, and Terra Blanche's wife, the more the driver and Terra Blanche's wife appeared to detest Terra Blanche. And that single documentary ended him as a force in South African politics. Uh, it, 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 he became a laughingstock. People stopped fearing him and they started laughing at him. And I, I know we're not in remotely parallel situation here. We've got a president rather than a, a fringe leader. But there is an awful lot of comic material out there and humor is deflating. Um, well, fear fear is, is empowering. I think Melania is ready for her close up in that documentary. I mean, yeah. yes. she, did. Yes. she did take LeBron James's side versus the president. You, you got to admit, it takes a certain kind of stupid in the president to, you know, go after the most popular athlete in America. The week that that athlete opens up a school for disadvantaged kids and offers to pay for their education through college as a way of helping to bring back his hometown of Akron, Ohio. I um, think, though, to Trump, in all seriousness, Trump views that as an example of low intelligence. You know, what kind of sucker does something for other people? when he could be helping himself, you know? Yeah, he doesn't no. see that as like, oh, this is so impressive. He thinks, what a moron. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's, you're, abso you're, ab you're absolutely right. And by the way, Ed, you're not just an enemy of the people, you know? I, I think in Trump's book, you've got two strikes against you as an immigrant and a member of the press. Um, that's absolutely, and a green card holder, you know, which, which have no rights of appeal. Yeah, as a green card holder for now, we don't, you know, I mean, we're like deporting the spouses of, you know, Marines and, you know, you know, all sorts of other horrible things. And we're actually, I believe there were cases that there was a story recently about reevaluating people's citizenship. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's pretty, pretty horrifying. Um, Corey, let's just switch a little bit gear now because we're going through a couple of, you know, sort of day's worth of news, the president of the United States or the government that he leads has announced that as of midnight on the on Tuesday night, which will be sort of after everybody hears this, the United States is reimposing sanctions on Iran. Now, there is no real chance that this is going to, you know, help in any way. Uh, and in fact, as the you know, the undoing of Jikpoa, as Rosa would call it, um, uh, seems to be unfolding. There doesn't seem to be a plan B. He's just, you know, putting pressure on the Iranians without actually offering anything up in exchange. And then as a little footnote to all of this, we're discovering that there's some new intelligence suggesting that the Iranians are working very closely um, with the North Koreans. Um, uh, in, in a variety of, of, of ways, uh, including with the Houthis and, 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 and provision of weapons and so forth, um, which is a bit of a paradox for old, old Trump. But it does seem to reveal that, you know, as you look at most of his major foreign policy moves, pulling out of TPP, pulling out of Jikpoa, um, pulling out of the Paris Accords, uh, alienating NATO, et cetera, et cetera, they mostly tend to be temper tantrums followed by no next step. And, and, it, and that seems to be probably the worst foreign policy I've ever seen. But perhaps you recall <laughs> another. 
<laughs> Millard Fillmore's foreign policy was really not very impressive. <laughs> yes, David, I understand that you are trying to get my goat. In fact, that is the deep state radio swag we need to have a coffee cup with my goat on it that David can get each week. Um, the, uh, so, so I won't start on William Henry Harrison's foreign policy, but I will say. Yeah, did William Henry Harrison I, only have 30 days to have a foreign policy? <laughs> um, but I will say that I agree with you that, the administration, or at least the White House and the Secretary of State, appear to be operating both in the case of Iran and in the case of Korea, as though the way this works is for the Secretary of State to give a speech which outlines all of our demands, and then glitter, unicorns, and it happens. They don't appear to be engaging in either the horse trading of negotiation in which you identify common interests and agree to, uh, to a bargain, nor do they appear to be operating in the space of here's what we want to achieve. Let's work backwards to a series of interim steps that accomplish that objective. It's, it, they don't, you scolded me last time for the fact that steering wheels aren't connected to the engines. Um, I didn't uh, so, scold you. I was just so, making an observation. <laughs> um, the, the metaphor of what isn't connected to what's driving the process that you would like, I will happily slot in here um, because you're exactly right, David. They don't, like, how do we get from here to there on Iran? What made the sanctions against Iran effective last time was that we persuaded our European allies and the Chinese and the Russians to uphold them. The Russians and the Chinese are breaking the North Korea, like, maximum pressure is over against North Korea. The Chinese are going to be buying Iranian oil. Europeans may have to grit their teeth and, and acknowledge that the American market is so valuable to them that their companies aren't going to risk exclusion. But they will resent us really deeply for this. And meanwhile, Iranians are rioting in the streets not because of their government's foreign policy or for anything that has to do with us. But we're not doing anything to engage that in a positive way and to help the forces that want accountable government in Iran. So we're missing huge opportunities. We, their economic analysis is bad, so they don't understand what's going to make the sanctions effective or not. And the you know, the crazy clown car of their negotiating process gives Russia, China, and not just Russia and China, other oil buyers for Iran as well. And anybody who's got sanctions on North Korea to have an excuse to say, I have no idea what American policy is. I just need to move ahead with what what needs to go on for me. All right. That, I mean, that's a, a, a good summary. And 
And obviously, Rosa and Ed, when I get to you, if you want to add something on it, go ahead and add something on it. But I want to sort of move the conversation a little bit further to another set of things that have just sort of struck me in the past week, um, maybe as a point that we can wrap this podcast on. And that is, you know, I was noticing that, for example, um, the Canadian government protested the treatment of some women's rights act, women's rights activists in Saudi Arabia, and the Saudis immediately went like completely Sopranos on them, and it was like they're pulling out their 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 embassy, they're asking all the students studying there to come home, they're suspending flights from Saudi Arabia to Canada. I mean, they're really really getting heavy handed on this, and at the same time, you have Israel moving forward with this nation state law that had. 250,000 people in the streets over the weekend because it's fundamentally an apartheid law that says Israel is for Jews only and Druze citizens, for example, that have been loyal members of military are outraged, but everybody should be outraged. It's outrageous. But Israel's proceeding in this direction. And I can go on and on with a list of these things, Rosa, but it strikes me that it, that that countries everywhere are looking at the United States and saying, well, they would have been a check there. They would have said no to this. They would have been a problem. This would have gotten us sideways with them on human rights, or they would have imposed sanctions, or they would have pressured us. And we're not doing it anymore. And and really bad impulses are filling that void. And that's a it's a kind of a growing trend. And I was just wondering what you think. Well, you know, I'm as appalled as you are by both of the examples you cite. Um, but I'm less convinced that, I, I'm less convinced that the US would be making a difference one way or the other. Um, I, I think that for some time now, it's been pretty clear that the Saudis uh, and the Israelis are perfectly willing to go their own way on, a, on human rights, uh, regardless of US opprobrium. Um, and it's also been perfectly clear for multiple administrations that the U.S. is is even when we were willing in prior administrations to make little you know noises and and so forth um, when the Israelis and the Saudis did morally disgusting things that we weren't actually willing to uh, stop uh, providing substantial amounts of aid and assistance you know that that we. The, the we, we weren't really going to do anything about it, and that's exactly why, for some time now, neither of those two states has cared very much what we what we say. So, so I think I think independent of that, it would be nice to see the United States uh, government saying things like, you know, we don't actually think women's rights activists should be put in prison, Saudis, and you know, Israelis, we actually don't think it's appropriate to say that a democracy is a country only for people of one religion or one ethnic background and not for the other people who've spent their whole lives there and have lived there for generations. You know, it, it would be nice to have our country continue to stand for those principles. I, I'm just less convinced than you are that uh, uh, it would have made any particular difference given, I mean, I, I, I think that in, in the abstract, the U.S. could make a difference, but if and only if we were willing to do something that previous administrations have also been unwilling to do, which is actually uh, significantly cut funds as opposed to just wrapping them on the wrist rhetorically. And it's true, but Ed, previous governments have done that from case to case. And I think we see lots of governments here that are willing to say, you know, that's not... Uh, uh, 
that's you know that that, that they're gonna that they don't see the U.S. as enforcing anything, and therefore why not do whatever they want? Yeah, I mean, I think the, there are a couple of sort of wheels within wheels here. One is the um, sort of the glass jaw, jaw of uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. I mean, the guy sort of uh, clearly feels a sense of domestic vulnerability because he's alienated most of his family. You know, he had them locked up in a hotel, and not just, you know, a comfortable <laughs> hotel. Some of them were <laughs> beaten it, up. Are we allowed to do that with our families? Yeah, it's a tempting thought. It's, yeah. yeah. The holidays uh, are approaching, Rosa. Yeah, I think Ritz Carlton is going to offer new holiday packages. And then right. it'll be you know, the house arrest package. Yeah, uh, house I, arrest for Christmas. It'll be if fantastic. If I could shake down my family for $200 billion, believe me, it would be a no brainer. But uh, I suspect they'll have it sorted away in, in cleverer places. Um, but there is that. Then, of course, is the fact that Canada, you know, and the U.S. are not on the same, uh, not on the same team, to, perceived to be on the same team. Trudeau is, you know, the opposite end of not just the political, but the sensibility spectrum to Donald Trump. And Trump and Kushner and others are besties with, with the crown prince. So there is that. But I, I have to get in one thing. Your, your um, piece, you mentioned Israel, uh, David, your column in Haaretz coruscating, I mean, really strong column about the, the new law that Netanyahu has passed. I can, I'd commend it to anybody who hasn't read. Um, very, very strong. Uh, I, I'm, I'd be interested to hear what kind of reaction you, you've got from, I mean, I know his, Haaretz readers are more on the left, but um, you, you sort of put Israel in a category there with, you know, other sort of vaguely alt-right governments from Hungary onwards. You said something quite strong in that column. Well, I, you know, I think I did. It, it, it was hard for me, but essentially what I said in the column was, you know, I grew up as a kind of Jewish kid in America. And when I was a young kid, there was the Six Day War and we thought Israel was kind of this miracle state. It was David against Goliath. They were turning the desert green. And then, you know, as I got a little older, I got out of college. Um, I, you know, the, the, in the 80s, there was the uh, Sabra and Shatila camp massacres. And then the right started to gain strength. The, uncoincidentally, as more Russian Jews got there. And then, um, the, you know, you started to having the, the uh, settlements being built and, 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 and less and less regard, I think, for the Palestinians. Part, part of this do, in fact, the Palestinians failed attempts at, at leadership or finding good leadership. But in any event, Israel started behaving more like a bully in the region. And you know, new generations of political leaders like Barack Obama and others, that was the primary experience of their adulthood. And now you get to a new time where Netanyahu has gone around the corner in the past couple of years, been brutal against the people of Gaza, far out of any proportion to any threat from um, uh, Gaza or from the Palestinian people. And now has passed this law, which has taken people that I once was quite critical of, like Jimmy Carter, who said Israel was an apartheid state, and turned them into prophets. They, they called it. That's what Israel has become. And it's very hard to go from saying, well, I feel this kind of affinity to Israel to I feel I have an obligation to oppose its government and put as much pressure on it as possible. But I don't I don't see if, you know, if you're moral, if you value human rights, if you value democracy, if you value tolerance, then you have to stand up against this. And, you know, I think that, you know, there are a couple of, you know, ironic tragedies in this one, of course, being that Israel was founded as a result of the ethnocentric, ethno-nationalist policies of Nazism and 
and the, the horrible consequences that they had. And people said, well, these people have a right to a state. Um, and now they're embracing policies that are, um, uh, in, in many respects, uh, as, as uh, a brutal or at least headed in that direction, uh, and not as brutal as the Nazis, but, the, but, the, but they have the same kind of origin of impulse, which is organizing states purely on the basis of uh, ethnicity. And then on top of that, Israel said, well, we're the, the, the only um, you know, democracy in the region. Look at us. And they've gradually become more like one of the theocracies in the region and have lost that distinction. Um, and I think it's a tragedy. And I think if the government changes, the country can change again conceivably. Um, uh, but the drift rightward there has been many years coming, and it doesn't look like that's on the horizon. And so I, I, I'm sorry to go into this long thing, but for people who hadn't read it, that was my view. Uh, let me wrap up by Corey or Rosa. Do you have anything to say on, on any of that? No, I, I mean, it was a very powerful piece, David. And, and I, you know, this is the nation state version of something that we know was true on an individual level that, you know, abused children statistically are more likely to grow up to be abusive adults. Um, and, you know, this is sort of the, the writ large. Um, it's, it's, it's wrenching and painful and, and terribly, terribly tragic to see the state of Israel, which, as you said, grew, grew up uh, out of revulsion and, and, you know, against the, the idea of, of, you know, an ethno state uh, that that would consider as lesser class humans uh, everyone else, and to see Israel uh, moving further and further in that direction is is just a terrible tragedy. Last word, Corey. My last word is that we are being slagged on Twitter uh, because for last week's episode in which. We were calling cricket unwatchable. So when <laughs> not not when by Tim me, I remained silent. Hear this this week. Let them know that Ed Luce carried the day. <laughs> I don't think he did. Well, quite honestly, I think Ed Luce. <laughs> meant spent, I will be back. I will be back. I, that wasn't the last word. It unbelievable. But I don't. I I don't want to um, be be flippant because David, that was a really poignant. Um, set of comments you just made. I found them really powerful. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you. You don't have to say that. Um, uh, but uh, but you do have to say that cricket's kind of boring. Because um, <laughs> it is. Because this is Deep State Radio, and we're afraid of no one, and we speak truth to power. And that includes... <laughs> Even English. if it means that we're getting into a bit of a sticky wicket. <laughs> very good, Rosa. Very exactly, good. Ex exactly. Yeah. Well, you don't want to run afoul of those men in those, you know, finely pressed white trousers and those white cricket sweat sweaters or whatever you called them, jumpers, Rosa. Um, uh, because you know they look like they could be quite formidable. Um, if it was a real sport, they wouldn't be wearing jumpers. <laughs> so true. So true. All right, folks, that's another episode of Deep State Radio with us and the whole gang here. We are hoping you're enjoying your summer, even though the world's going to hell in a handbasket, and that you are all around for more fun on our next episode, which is our big, big think episode, our big books episode, our uh, chance to reveal uh, what deep thinkers uh, each of us are. And by each of us, I mean the other three, not me. Uh, thank you very much, Rosa, Corey, and Ed.
Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.